Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week I speak to Sandra Barefoot, Russia Coles, Siobhan Jackson and Ruth Chitty from The Forgiveness Project. The Forgiveness Project works to collect and share stories from both survivors and perpetrators of crime who have rebuilt their lives following hurt and trauma. In this episode, they discuss their new research on the importance of understanding the impact of shame on people's behaviour. My name is Sandra Barefoot and I have worked for the Forgiveness Project for 13 years and I'm their programme development lead, which means that I develop the programmes and I facilitate them and I bring my colleagues, as, as we are today, together to look at how we can do work online, courses online, but also lead in the prison programme that we run called Restore. So I'm Siobhan. I have been involved with the Forgiveness Project since 2017. I started as a participant within the programme and kind of worked my way through to sharing my my story, which I did whilst I was still serving in prison. And since I've been released, I've continued to work and I've been working within prisons and other projects that we've had. Hello, I'm Ruth. I've worked with the Forgiveness Project since 2009 in prisons across the country and Sandra and I came to this research together in 2017 as a sort of response to what we were seeing in for women in prison. My name's Russia. Um, I've been involved with the Forgiveness Project for the last five years and I have lived experience of the female estate dating back to 2008 and I'm just passionate about women and you know the criminal justice system and how we can sort of do things better. Okay, so what I want to know is um, we're talking about shame today and the shame resilience theory research that, that you guys have been involved in. Sandra, could you give me an overview of the research and what it is that you, mm-hmm. you were setting out to do to begin with? Yeah, so I just want to give a tiny bit of background to why we did this research, the impetus for it. So I think because we started work in the women's estate. So Restore is an intensive group-based programme. Um, that looks at sharing our stories, restorative narratives based in inquiry and growth. And we would do this for four intensive days with men. And then we went to the female state and started to look at the female state. This was in around 2014. And from 2016 onwards, we really were embedded and adapting our work in the female estate. And over those that time, so seven years, we started to really see the ubiquity of shame playing out within our group sessions. So I used to say, you know, we're holding a space of trauma. 
But after a while, we're going, no, this is shame. What we're actually holding right now is shame okay, from trauma. Okay, and forgive my ignorance, that is different, right? It's I'm going different. to ask lots of stupid questions you need to. No, 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 it's, <laughs> they're not stupid. That's a brilliant question because a lot of people say, hold on a minute, what do you mean shame? It's trauma. And I think that's why we're having this discussion because it's this interlocking that they're completely, it's very hard to separate the two. When you're talking about trauma, you're talking about shame. They are not separated out. And then what we're talking about is this place of unresolved trauma that is where shame has played out for, for so long and we're not realising it's playing out. So I think in our group process in Restore, it was looking at how do we speak? How do we look at harm, remorse, retribution, re reconciliation, revenge that we want to actually still commit? How do we do this honestly? And how can we speak knowing that we might be understood and not judged by being able to speak through the stuff that we're feeling? That most people don't want to hear from anybody who's serving in prison, that they're still thinking, I need to commit harm again. And this is, this is really important to be looking at these discussions because in order to really look at recidivism and to reduce reoffending, we've got to look at the shame. Until we address the shame, can we really start to see what, where people are at in their lives um, and how they can start to look at their behaviours? But that's gone off a little bit from, I'll just go back to the female estate. When, so what we were seeing in the female estate was this huge place of women's uh, behaviours were increasing in shame-based behaviours. And we, in our programme, we were talking through shame. We were very competent within shame. We started to talk about our own shame. And so we saw the impact on the women in the programme. But outside on the wings and on the corridors and with officers, we were seeing something completely different. So there was a really increase in violence and there was a lot of challenging behaviours. Officers would come up and say, women's behaviour is so violent, I don't understand. And Ruth and me turned to officers and said, but it's shame under violence. And they were like, completely like, ah, what? What do you mean? that Shame? Violence? How do they link? And then the only reference we had at that point was to James Gilligan's work, which is the National Epidemic of Violence, where he looked at men. 25 years. There is so little research on women. We found two papers on women specifically looking at shame and violence and aggression. Only two papers? Two papers. Wow. And out of interest, are they from England and Wales or are they American or was it this country? One was American. There's been yeah. a bit more research, I think, in America. Right. Yeah, they seem to be more but progressive. Very low on the ground. Very here. low on the ground. And directly at violence and aggression and challenging behaviours. And I think it feeds into this place of women, doesn't it? That to see a violent woman, to see a woman who's aggressive and challenging, it's very different than when we see a man in that state. I, I think we respond to it differently. And we can talk about this. I, I think there'll be a lot to be said. So it was from this place. And also there were disturbing things that Ruth and me were feeling mm -hmm. in the estate that women were coming to us desperate. So one woman came to us desperate to do the programme. She'd had 15 adjudications before coming to our programme. Yeah, and the adjudications, the internal, um, internal discipline pr procedures, yeah, procedures within the prison. Yeah. So this is an example of what really spurred us on as well. She had 15 adjudications before doing the programme. She was told she was not suitable to come to our programme. Understandably, if you think someone's been really conflicting, they're saying she's going to not good for your programme. But she ran along the corridor to us saying, I need to do this programme. I need, and you know, swearing. And I looked at her, I went, okay. And I remember you were there, Siobhan, in this programme. Yeah. 
And you could hear me outside the corridor negotiating with... Working your magic. <laughs> Working my magic. Well, what Working they'd done with that woman yeah. was they'd said she, she had come saying, I have so much anger, I have to deal with it. They said she wasn't suitable and they put her on nail art, a nail art course. And she was saying, how is nail art going to help me? Yeah, this is making me more angry. It's demeaning though, isn't it's it? Just that, it's completely yeah. invalidating how she's feeling mm. and what she wants and needs is the process of that course and she was being denied that and you were taking part in that course weren't yeah you? i was Can you tell was me a I bit about that here so at that then point you were i think you were peer support so you had done the store yeah and then you came as peer support and then yeah. you become a speaker yeah and she was there for my speaking she was she had quite a big response to my story yes. I seem to remember and then you started to support her didn't yeah you, you talked yeah. her on the wings yeah so I was still a current prisoner at that time the way that the program kind of brings everybody together especially the women who are taking part there's quite often a fear that what you're sharing is making you incredibly vulnerable and are you then going to be vulnerable on the wings because of what you've shared what actually happens, and I remember you, Sandra, saying this, it's kind of like you put your, everybody's putting their arms around each other and holding that circle. Everybody has got each other's backs. So being vulnerable allows somebody else to be vulnerable. So you're not stuck in that place where you can't speak because you may be feeling ashamed of what it is that you need to say but if you've got somebody else and Ruth your story was the first story I heard and that was really unlocking for me because I felt if Ruth can be that vulnerable with her share then I can start and Sandra you used to say we just take a peek and close it back up again <laughs> and I remember that and you kind of look at it very briefly I think, okay it's there and then you find the courage but it comes naturally. It's not like you're sat there thinking, I need to say this, I need to say this. It comes naturally then in discussion within the group and mm. everybody takes care of each mm. other. I think what you're saying, Siobhan, is so important around this place that we are all together as a group, mm. mutually empathetic, understanding. We're all holding each other, not judging, and we're not alone. Yeah. And also we're talking our shame. So this woman who came, she then participated, an amazing artist. She was uh, incredible in her responding. She, there was no conflict. And after that, she had no more adjudications for six months. And the deputy governor wow. said, what have you done to this woman? But I think for us, we, there were many people we had like that who came to the programme. But she really evidenced something very crucial to us, as well as officers there are brilliant officers, as we do know, but there are officers that this female officer, I went onto the wing and I was pulling a woman to, to come to our programme. And this is what she said. She was furious. She went, you see that woman? She said she smashed up her TV because she can't get what she wants. What is that about? I don't get all this stuff. You harm yourself. Cut, cut, cut. Do you know what she said? She's lost her two children. You'd think she'd be angry about that. Hmm. And what really upset, and I turned to this officer and I said, listen, I need to tell you something. If you lose your two children, that is a heart, the shame of that is so unbearable that what she's doing is displaying it in this way through smashing up her TV. She can't go to that place because unbearable. And I, I turned to, I know you would say the same, wouldn't you, Russia? This place that it's just... The understanding of shame is so vital because when it's of that level and you cannot bear it, it's it's so deep, it's so deep-rooted, it's so 
it's not able to surface itself. So it comes out these other ways. It comes out sort of sideways. It comes out sideways. Yeah. And we and it's so nuanced, it's so individual that we don't understand it. And so this is what one of the really key things for the impetus was to look at how our research was looking at exploring shame resilience theory. How do we become resilient from our shame? And understanding how shame affects the behaviours of women of lived experience of prison. Because once we start to understand the language of shame and what it might look like, we can start to go, that's shame. That's what that is. Ah, I need to respond differently now. And this officer, for example, she had no clue. She just said, obviously, she found it immoral, whatever attitudes that people have towards women's crimes that they've committed. There is a immorality, as we know, people can feel. And so she couldn't work out the telly smashing to the children. She couldn't, there was this massive gap in mm. there. But it's like um, emotional intelligence, isn't it? So, you know, I'm, you know, a lot of people in the country, in the world don't have emotional intelligence because it's sort of a skill, isn't it? I guess. And I think that's one of the big problems inside prisons, isn't it? There's lots of people, whether they're prisoners or staff, who just don't understand emotions and haven't lived a life where they've been able to be given the emotional language. Yeah, I think there's also an added layer to it, which is I think shame kills emotional intelligence and I think shame kills compassion. So if you have officers who also are dealing with their own shame, like that woman, that officer you're talking about, it, it puts a blinder on compassion and emotional intelligence. I know when shame kicks off in me, I am not emotionally intelligent. All that is out of the window, you know, I'm a goner. And so if you're living in an environment that is constantly activating that for officers and for women, and I, I think I wanted to add something to what Sandra was saying about this continual atmosphere. We had a woman who came to a programme who had um, killed a man in a car accident and her name sounded a bit like the word crash. Every morning the officers would knock on her door and make this play on her name about a car crash. She was broken by what had happened. She was broken by what had happened. And she came into the programme, do you remember? And she was able to speak it. The shame that she felt, that they were literally knocking on her door and saying this to her. And that she was able to then speak it to us and the women, the group could come round her and could express their feeling and their outrage for this situation. And she was then able to talk about her guilt, about what had happened. How can you talk about how you feel when someone's treating you? You know, And so we're talking about microaggressions. It's constant. And that, you know, the officers aren't hiding that. That's open, open behaviour. That isn't like bullying around a corner. When one woman decided not to wear the prison tracksuits and she wore her own in our research and wore her own clothes... She was utterly vilified by the officers. Lots of sexual advances to her, lots of kind of innuendos about what she was wearing. And it became, so this place of compliance, when you're not complying, then the shaming that is taking place. So there's, there's I think it's very important to name, shaming is relational. It happens in the relational. And what happens when I think about officers, and not just officers, it's, and it's not all officers as we know, but you're mirroring something. Something is being mirrored to you. So I think of female officers and women in prison. What's being mirrored within the, the gender here between female to female? What's being mirrored from male officers to females? You know, there is, there is shaming going on, the relational shaming between each other, and that needs to be recognised. It feeds into power and control as well, doesn't it? You've got 
officers who are in charge and you've got the prisoners who have all of their rights taken away. You have to do as you're told. You have to be up at a certain time. Your room has to be uh, a certain level of what they decide is okay. But if they want to go through your room for any reason, there's no respect for any of your stuff. It is literally thrown everywhere. Jars of coffee poured on the floor. I've seen it. It's, it's horrible. There's no, there's no respect. And I think they forget that we're humans and... Yes, we've made mistakes and that has landed us in a place where we are being punished. But the punishment itself is being removed from our families, it's being removed from our children, it's being removed from our network of support that we can't then access easily. And they feel the need to compound that and make us feel worse because they feel that we're bad people. Not all officers are like that, but there is definitely a large proportion of officers who use their power against the women. And you do see women push back against that because they're they're made to feel ashamed by the officers. So they are, you do get women who push back and they're handled really badly. There's no compassion. There's You're not complying. You're not doing as you're told. So we're going to put you behind your door. We're going to remove any access to anybody else on the wing. We're going to put you in solitary. There's all the different ways that your rights as a human being are removed to be able to heal and grow and reform. You need that compassion. You need that care. You need that encouragement to make those changes. You don't need battering back into place. And I know when women have kind of exploded with violence and you see up to 10 officers on one woman it's horrific it's like how I know she's I know she's in a place where she's distressed but she's flooded her cell she's not washing she hasn't got access to her children she's pregnant and yet I can see six officers holding her rigid by her clothing and walking her out of her cell like what how is that how is that going to work better? yeah how yeah. how does that help anybody change and grow and it's so interesting sorry to interrupt That's what okay. you were saying Ruth about um because I've experienced this too with the trauma training that we do in prisons um no she won't be able to do it she's self-harmed too much she's you know been on the seg blah 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 and then I rem- remember being at um, a trauma conference at a particular prison and they'd finally let this woman on and she stood up on stage at this conference and she stood there and she said they'd thrown me in the bin they thought I couldn't do it because I was this because I was that I've been labeled everything and do you know what I did it it's the best thing I've ever done I've stopped self-harming I'm not going to say I'm never going to do it again but I understand where it comes from and honestly I've got goosebumps now even just saying it and it's often the women that need it the most Mm -hmm. are prevented from even trying absolutely and I always say look, do you think the world's going to stop spinning? Should we give it a go? And if it doesn't work, then we can do something about it. But why don't we just try? In our research, we came up with this word despite. Mm. So this place of how you become resilient from your shame, despite all of the uh, traumas you've been through, all the tragedy, all the situations you're with, despite that, I will fight. Despite that, I will. I have a life force within me. I have the resilience. I will not let this uh, take my life away from me. So there's this is that was really important to us. This word, despite which really comes up for me when you talk about this woman. Despite that, I'm here today. I'm going to make it through. And I think we, we in our research, one of the fundamental themes was making meaning. How do we make meaning? 
And I think it's really important that we go back to that point when the officer was saying to you, what did you do with that woman? What did you do? What was the magic formula? You validated her experience. You understood why the smashing of the telly is probably there's the stuff underneath. And that's what we talk about in shame resilience theory. It's what's underneath. It's not looking at the behaviours. Of course, the behaviour is this. It's mm. confrontational. It's challenging. It's We've got to have good orderly, um, good order and discipline. And that's what the prison is geared up to do. But... There is so much shame involved in that and they get the pushback and then it's just co-created, isn't it? And I was thinking about sort of my experience of being pregnant in the, the female estate. And recently someone went up to work to, to do some work in this quite well-known prison. And I think it's geared up the mother and baby unit to hold 12, is my understanding. But there's only three babies in there. And you can't get onto that wing unless you are like Snow White. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people, you can't even get onto that wing. So you're in, you're on a wing. Recently, someone's just, you know, there's been another death in, in custody, hasn't there? And, you know, the the a friend of mine was in there and she was witnessing what's happened and the girl's at the gate and she's saying, like, I'm losing my, like, holding her stomach. She's put behind the door. That's what happens because they don't understand how to deal with the the crisis that's constantly going on or the poor mental health. And, you know, I was just thinking, like, we're talking about basic human rights. When you're hungry, you're pregnant and you're hungry, you get a couple of extra biscuits and, like, an apple and the other women in the wing are feeding you because you're pregnant. That's so shaming that you can't even get enough nourishment. It's just on so many levels. And because you're feeling so powerless, you want to create, you know, and I was one of those prisoners that would have my telly removed, that would be put on basic, that was always put behind the door. But they're not really looking at what's going on underneath. You're away from your children. You're, you can't see. Your, your family is miles and miles away. I'd be going to Peterborough. My mum would drive with my son hours and hours and hours for a little, you know, you're in so much crisis and inner turmoil. Of course, the behaviour is going to come out somewhere. And like you said, um, Edwina, if you haven't got that emotional dexterity to talk about, I'm feeling really upset, I'm feeling really vulnerable, then it is the displays of, you know, attacking officers. And you see it all of the time. But it's just sort of like if you're watching it unfolding, you can see it all happening and just can't see why it's stopping now in 2022, why it still goes on. It's not like we can say, oh, it was 14 years ago still the same it's access to basic things like healthcare. like as a pregnant woman you need additional access to healthcare. i have my own troubles with access to healthcare, and you're made to feel like you're somebody who's just begging for a script you're somebody you're everybody's treated with that disdain disdain yeah, you're being a nuisance you're, why are you demanding. here you need painkillers why do you need painkillers i can't see anything wrong with you and you have to fight through these nurses to be able to actually get to see a doctor. So if the nurse deems that you're not worthy of seeing the doctor, you're not. it's not serious enough, you don't get to see a doctor. You can't call an ambulance when you're in significant pain. I lost my eardrum while I was in prison and I wasn't believed for a considerable amount of that and also wasn't given the correct care and treatment, which has left me with lifetime problems with my ear and you're made to feel like you're a nuisance that you're just looking for a script you're just looking you're just being a pain and why don't you just go away like why do you need to why do you need to see the doctor I'm not going to allow you to do that and seeing it play out it's not just me that it happens to it happens it happens across the board and you would hope that in a healthcare environment 
at the very least, it would be different, but it's not. You're not treated with the respect of being a human being. You're seen as somebody who's just got an angle and trying to get something. Yeah. Just going back to um, the shame bit and where it intersects with trauma, because I think this is a really important one to, I'm still getting my head around it. And correct me if I'm wrong. So in my mind, it's like traumatic experience happens. You keep that secret. It's horrific. And you'd rather it hadn't happened. So you sort of scooch it under the rug and hope that you never have to think about it again. But of course... The emotions keep surfacing, but it's the... Because Im- shame is shame like embarrassment. Would you say it's like embarrassment? It's like I'm embarrassed to talk about it. I don't want anyone to know. And I'm so full of shame because of it. I think shame isn't like an umbrella term. There are so many ways to look at shame in yeah. terms of being ashamed, humiliated, um, disrespected, ridiculed. You know, there's many different ways to describe it. Mm. Um, but I think if we looked at, yeah, guilt being that I did something, so it's not of me, I am of this. And that's the key difference, I think, is, mm. and also what shame we're talking about. There's acute shame and there's chronic shame. Yeah. You know, they're very, they're different. Yeah, and you might have neglected your children, so you might feel acute. shame yeah. because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's because... There's this thing with guilt. Most people say guilt and shame. And I noticed in a conference not long ago, everybody was just saying trauma and guilt, 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 guilt was everywhere. And I was going, no, it's shame. And I think it's this distinction, isn't it, that guilt is I did something. So it's not of me. So I did this. It's active. I have something. I might be able to make amends, actually. I might be able to say sorry. And actually, can I, I, I might be able to do something to, to help, help you. Or So I don't feel so guilty. I'm not saying you don't have intense feelings of it's still painful to feel so guilty but I think it and that can sometimes bleed into shame I think guilt can bleed in but generally guilt is much more it has an obligation attached to it you can feel remorse through feeling guilt you can say I'm sorry you can be active it's much more shame is of I am this I am this flawed fundamentally unworthy unlovable being and it is not just personal it's societal as well so we've got to remember that you have shame that is personal and you have shame that is societal so they, they, it, there's collective shame and we, they both feed into one another. And shame is a wound of the self and other, separates you from yourself and from other. It's this separation. And I think when, and I'll come over to Ruth and Russia, is that when in that situation you're describing, is that the shame of self, that I did something for this to happen to me. Okay. I was responsible. Okay. Something of me made that happen to me because it didn't happen to you if you're in a family siblings and there's four of you one happens to you and not to the other three what is that saying that's of me it's because I am like this there's something fundamentally flawed in me and that's why it's happened to me it's a very tricky but it's relational okay and shame is relational and trauma is relational in this context that you're given it's relational so how can it be separated out from the relational the gaze of the person upon you is is the most crucial place around where shame exists from the very moment we're born what is the gaze upon you and that came up in your research didn't it, it? came up in the when research when it's not mirrored back when you have somebody understanding you and that compassion and that's what i felt for the first time when i started talking with the forgiveness project and talking about my story i didn't feel judged i was saying to um ruth and sandra like half the experiences that happened to me in prison i'd never talk to any well never talk to anybody about it because it's so traumatizing not even a therapist you think frightened and upset the poor therapist (laughs) so but when I was recounting my story and you feel like you're understood on a deep level that's what started shifting things and there was some movement yeah I think that's really true and I I was really interested 
in your word embarrassment, Edwina. So I have a bit of a reaction to the word embarrassment because it feels a bit um, light. And I, I think, and then I was thinking as you were talking, and I was thinking about a child, and a child is embarrassed because they wet themselves at primary school. So if they wet themselves at primary school and a teacher comes and says, oh, my love, what happened? Okay, let's clean you up. This is not a problem. We're all okay. They will feel embarrassed, but that will shuffle and settle in their system. If the teacher says, what is wrong with you? And why hasn't your mum packed extra pants? Da, 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 then that embarrassment gets embedded and becomes shame. Right, because there's something wrong with because them. Because I, they am, been, yeah. I am wrong. And okay, I think the thing, the thing about shame, which is what you said, is that once it is spoken light is able to come to it and then it can shift and there are things that I have been very ashamed about then I speak them and actually then almost it becomes just embarrassment so it can kind of go back up the scale okay do you see what I mean yeah and I was so it's like shame sits really deep and it was very interesting yeah. what you were saying Sandra about the the the, the sort of the public and the private shame because yeah. today is a remembrance day of a, a slave uprising in Haiti and I was reading about it today and this this person was saying the person writing the article was saying why do we not talk about this? What is this that we we, we can you know we talk about we we, we remember when slave, slavery was abolished, but we don't re, we don't do anything deep in remembrance of the of the absolutely horrific thing that that was. And it's a part of it, I believe, is like a collective. Oh no, no, no. Yeah, we're not going to talk mm. about that. We're just going to blank that out, and that's what we do individually as, as and we do it to one another. Let's not talk about that. Yeah, let's just push and that I away. And I think when the criminal, when we're talking about the criminal justice system, it's it's based on shame. It's based on the Victorian values of sin and shame. Of, of sin and shame. So yeah. we're talking about the collective shaming of individuals going into prison, and and it's condoned that yes, of course you should feel shame, and there's this place of healthy shame. You know, this place of, I know there's a real question mark about it, but people say, oh, there's healthy shame because it keeps the moral order. You know, it keeps us intact. There is this argument that they say there's healthy shame because if you're told that you're, you cannot do that, that is a wrong thing to do, then you will be put in order and you'll never do it again. But what happens is, of course, is the toxicity of that is you end up having a shame state inside you. The state mm. of shame lives inside you mm. and it becomes a state and it gets toxic. Perfectionism is the classic of shame. You know, okay. to be a perfectionist, you're trying to control everything and it's completely like masking I, shame. Masking yeah, shame. Trying to and it's, it. and yeah. trying to control it. And shame is all about control. I need to control you know, what is happening around me because I haven't had control in the past and how I've been shamed before. I think I think it's just it's a fascinating subject and it needs explicitly talking about because we're not doing that and it's systemic it's in the whole system yeah. and I I think there is a real thing within our research that became so disturbing which is the place of women in society that is fed into the shaming in the criminal justice system you can see the whole place of you could say that the violence towards women in society the increase of that you're seeing this mirroring in the prison situation yeah. You know, and this is what's disturbing. Some of the research is really it's disturbed really around disturbing. this. Ruth immediately know where to put it in the research yeah. because it's so disturbed about the women's positioning. So I remember when you going back to what you were saying, Javon, you know, in the research, some women would say, if you were more demure and passive and mm. quiet and maybe a bit more overweight and a bit more looking more vulnerable, people were kinder to you.
If you were out there demanding, really fierce, quite strong, defended, you know, trying to get your rights, you were put down fast. You know, the, the shaming of what you're meant to be as woman, you know, and mothers, as we know, are treated so much harsher in prison systems, but it's all shame, shame of being woman. But it's like you know? sort of, it's class, isn't it? It's, it's traditional gender roles. It's like, Completely. and I always say to people, when you go into a prison, if you haven't before it, I try and describe it like getting into a time machine and going back to like the 1800s. Not that I ever lived in that time, but I imagine, you know, it's kind of like all the things that we and I feel like we left behind because we're so much more progressive these days. And then you kind of go, oh my God, I don't think we are. And they say that prisons are a microcosm of society. And we should be judged on how we treat our prisoners. Prisoners, yeah. said Churchill. Yeah. There was a woman in our research. She served a sentence for manslaughter for killing a man who had raped her. And she, the, the stories that she, of her, the hypersexualization that the officers, so she would get to a gate and they would say, we're not going to let you through till you give us a blowjob. Mm. So that is, you know, and then we look at what happens outside. You know, it is, it's, it is, just, it's a microcosm of what goes on. But because, because we bring this kind of very moralistic tone into it, then it's all good. I also want to note as well what's really important is that on the face of men doing that to this woman at the mm. gate and other behaviours, other behaviors, you had another yeah. man, a more senior man on the wing who she was able to go to, tell him yeah. what happened, and he was just furious at, at yeah. sorting it out. Yeah, so you have this depiction of the, the man who is absolutely never going to let any woman be treated like that by his officers, you know, being holding her back. Yeah. So you had this real disparity going on, as you did with an officer, and I'm not allowed to hug you, but I'm going to hug you anyway. And I think, no, I and think that's this. a beautiful um, example of when we went into the prison and how you are treated as key holders. Yeah. You know, when you're walking in with your keys, you're treated a certain way. Yeah. And then we were on the wing. And if you tell what happened with that officer, yes. I think that beautifully shows for a moment you saw a glimpse of what it's like to be a prisoner. Yeah. Yes. How well, they what? feel when they thought you, you were a prisoner. Yeah. Do you want to say what No, but I think uh, Sandra tells it better. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I'll start, but I think you've got the kind of... We came in the back door, do you remember, onto the wing. We had keys. And we came on and the officer came up to us and thought we were prisoners, didn't he? Thought we'd escaped. He thought we'd, he escaped. we'd escaped. Are you he escaped said, prisoners? are you escaped prisoners? He was so rude. And I think that really rattled the cage. You know, that moment. Really, that moment. It was a I moment remember of Russia we were differ treated differently. We were one way when you come in with the yeah. the project and you're very treated very nicely and everyone, you know, wants to be yeah. quite helpful. Yeah. to the difference when they think you're a prison, you're an escapee yeah. in my office. But I also, I, I do want to say when we first started this research, some of the officers we have very good relationships with, they were desperately helpless. They were like, we mm. don't know how. They were so disturbed by the level of violence and the challenging behaviours of women. They were, like, they were fathers with daughters and it was so disturbing. They were like... They felt helpless. What can we do? You, please, out of this research, can you give us something? You know, well, the look at the number of act books on his desk. Yeah. Yes. So people who are yes. self-harming and who need looking after, and there's two officers on a wing, and there was the, his desk was covered, covered in them. them. 
So when you wonder why are they not getting that duty of care, why are they not getting the support? Because they haven't got the resources. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. haven't got that one-on-one -on -one relationship. They don't understand mm -hmm. the backstory. Why is she throwing mm -hmm. her telly mm -hmm. at the wall or flooding her cell? Mm -hmm. It's just looked at the behaviour, the top, the iceberg. Yeah, and as you say, you know, so I know you guys have been running these interventions and sort of groups in prisons for so long and, and you know, as we have in One Small Thing for the past six years or whatever. And the amazing thing is, you know it's awful seeing the bad but what I've really enjoyed is seeing the good as well and the amount of officers who as you say really really want to understand this stuff a lot of them do sort of understand it and it puts a framework around it for them and legitimizes it for them so they get mm -hmm. really excited because they're mm -hmm. like oh my god someone's come along and actually articulated it for me in a sort of operational prison sense but I feel so sorry for them too because you know, you do your best, don't you, to get these interventions in, to get them running, to get women on them, and you fight, fight, fight to the gate. But then we have no control over what goes on inside mm -hmm. the prison. Mm -hmm. So that's really challenging, isn't it? Because you can only do so much. And, and, and I feel like I fight on a daily basis for those really good officers who love to see a prison mm. working on the premise of respect and interventions running all over the place and women being engaged in their own mm. recoveries and helping each other. Mm. And it's so sad that we can't help those officers to achieve that. I think it's a systemic need that we come in with this particularly, and I know Trauma Informed is the same, in the sense that systemically we need to just take another lens, a shame lens, as well as the trauma lens. So mm. we've looked at the trauma lens. We need the shame lens because it's different. It's a different lens to be looking through because I remember talking to Peter Dawson not long ago and I said, uh, he said, the thing is, I said, we need to look at shame and I was telling him about the research and he said, that's what we've been talking about. He said, because trauma, I don't have trauma, but I have shame because it's universal. And there's something about that relational that's so important that we are all part of each other. And it's the connectedness that we need to be looking at, the relationship between one another, rather than separating and saying, so that's trauma, that's all to do with trauma, and I've got nothing to do with that. It's this connection to the shame to the trauma that is really key that brings people into connection, going, oh, now I understand how I'm affecting, because my shame, if I'm not shame competent or understand my shame, I'm going to spill it onto somebody else. She's going to, someone's going to trigger it in me and I'm going to trigger it in them. So this is where it gets really messy with shame, understanding shame, and we don't have the language for it. Yeah, and I think that that's a really key point, which also links to the fact that, so if you think about those officers that you're talking about, Edwina, who really are really engaged and really, really there and want to do, do their best within a broken system, there's shame for them that they can't be the person that they yeah. want to be. They don't want to be hauling women off to the seg. Absolutely. They don't, so then they feel shame. And I know as a parent, when I feel I've let my child down, I can often respond out of my own shame by shaming them. Why did you do that? Actually, it's my own shame that I'm wrestling with. And I think that this is what Sandra is saying, that the, because the whole... It's, there was a very interesting piece of research that came out of the NHS defense about anxiety. defense anxiety. So there you are, yeah. you're trying to do your job, you have all the best will in the world and you can't, you're constantly late, you can't meet people for appointments, you're letting people are down. So then you feel shame. What do you do with that shame? If you're not shame competent yeah. with it, you will spill it out. I heard someone talking about, you know, the levels of burnout within um, the system and it was really interesting and it, it the way someone put it was really good because they said when staff are asked to operate against their moral code that's when often it will um 
end up in them suffering burnout. So you have to ask, why those men knocking? Why are those officers knocking on that woman's door and using that nickname for her about... But it becomes ask, Why do they do it? But then why? I look at collective thinking. Yes. And when you get groupthink and you get the group... I mean, we could look at that for hours, like couldn't we, about... Trauma. How they're they're trauma. They're they're of, yeah. And then they're behaving. And then they're behaving. They're doing something, you know, this all boys together. It's a but, way of coping. It's an well, adaptive also hum- style of coping. Yes, because humour, we, we laugh so much, don't we? And we laugh we so do. much in the research because humour dissipates shame. So in the sense of that really recalls that thing when you've got the group of five officers, like we saw going yeah. another woman, we're all together. This is the way we're dealing with something that is so shameful that to we be can't seeing, deal with, yeah. you know, that we actually can't deal with. So let's use humour. Let's use other strategies, understandably, but they're defence strategies to avoid feeling that shame. Because it's just horrendous, isn't it? It's horrendous that it's you're, tinderbox. you're yeah. it's a tinderbox. Yeah. So um, back to the research, how long did it take? It took four years. We started 2017. I think the thing that it that it came from is wanting to deeply understand something and see that there's there's a piece missing, and and wanting to to not fill that falsely but fill it with 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 something. I mean, you could all. I mean, we wouldn't use these words, but sort of data-driven. Where is this coming from? What is this? What's causing this? Will this help if we understand this? Because we were witnessing huge amounts of shame. We were also witnessing astonishing resilience to that shame. The way the women were working with that shame, some of it would be classed by the service as unhealthy, sure, but they were still working with it. They were trying to become resilient to it. So we were, uh, the research came from this place of what is this missing piece? How can we really understand it? What information and, and, and data and understanding can, what lens can we bring to bear on it that will ultimately improve the care that these women are getting and for the officers? Because whatever job I want to do, I want to understand it. I don't want to be flailing around in the dark with no idea what I'm doing. So any lens that we can bring to bear that gives more light has got to be a good thing. And I think that's what hauled us, my darling, through the past four years. <laughs> well, it did because we were passionate. I think yeah, it was, really we was, passionate. but we'd had eight years of witnessing of stuff witnessing that we were so distressed so by. So unhappy by. Yeah. I think, I think when you leave yeah. and you will know this, Edwina, and and both Siobhan and Rush will know the distress of what you're leaving with or over mm. and over. You and also the care you have that we've got if we if this is the system right now, of course, all of us want it rehauled. We do not want the system as it stands. But actually our fundamental hearts is that please can we change the way we are behaving towards people yeah. is you know who have committed a crime because we're doing more harm. You know, we are condoning state violence by holding these prisons open. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing, and we're condoning the the place that... Of shame, aren't we? And I also sort of think, you know, when sometimes, because of course there's the cohort in society who are like, do the crime, do the time. Um, but I then also always talk about um, prisons as a place of work. Mm-hmm. That's why people go yes. to do their job. Mm-hmm. What happened to employment law and sort of things like that and a healthy place of work mm-hmm. and making sure that the people who do that work are appropriate. Um, trained. 
trained, yeah. qualified individuals to be Supervised. able to work in places Supervised. that can be very dangerous, can be tinderboxes, as you say. And only a small amount of information and education on this stuff actually goes a really long way for a young officer who might never have thought about it. And it's like, do you know what? If you say this, you could end up with someone attacking you. If you say this you could end up completely diffusing something that could end yes. up in a riot. You would see the new officers, like they would be glaringly obvious because they would be so hesitant about things. They would be standing back. They You would see the fear in them about them just having this very brief amount of training and being dumped into an environment where you can feel it's palpable. You can feel the tension when there's something going on on the wing you can feel it. If you've got a really inexperienced officer in that mix, how do they know how to respond? Like you say, they haven't been given those tools. They haven't been given the guidance. They don't have the information. They, they so don't they know. just don't know. And mistakes get made and they learn from those mistakes and think, well, I just have to be harder or I just have to be this and I have to put my foot down more. But that that doesn't work. them and us. Yeah, it does. It becomes, back. yeah. One of the um, recommendations from the research is around five-minute interventions, which is the thing that came out about how to how to have a five-minute intervention. And we were saying if we could bring shame-informed knowledge, knowledge, facts to that training so that, as you say, in that interaction, something can be defused rather than... Escalate. It escalate. It's how to de-escalate. It's how to de-escalate. And I think, I'm sure there's lots of work happening in this, but it's, it is those... One minute interaction. So, for example, one woman would say, the same woman who had the men come to her and say, you know, you're not going through this gate. Another man would say, you were really brave today. Or it took great courage what you just did. You know, the, this stuff. The difference that made, I don't know for yourself, yeah. just having one thing said to you, God, you've had a hard day, haven't you? Being noticed. Being, being seen. Being seen. Being seen and yeah. noticed and with was, empathy and understanding, some care. Being heard, isn't it? Being, it's being listened to. Yeah. Instead of having to shout and create, mm. thinking, but I'm trying to say, like, I haven't had a phone call, we haven't got out for showers, mm. or you want to, you want your rights. Need so some you, toilet roll. We'd like some, some toilet, toilet roll. roll. So then you learn, they're not coming, they're not going to give you the toilet roll. So you learn adapted behaviours, like, oh, I'd lay on the floor and kick, 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 because it's hugely annoying for somebody who's got to do a shift and we've got nothing else to do there's no telly there's nothing else in your cell so the behavior becomes compounded because it's it's so psychologically destroying to leave people on their own (laughs) in a cell in isolation and not unlocking you and it's happening obviously all through covid still happens now it's so distressing people just locked down behind their door and they see the violence the drugs all of these problems and they want answers but they don't seem to be able to listen to what the answers are which is do stuff different and i suppose if we're talking about don't do the crime if you can't do Do the the time time. then one of really clear answer to that for me is about effectiveness do we want an effective system that actually people who come in get care and get the help that they need, get listened to, get hurt, and don't go out and reoffend. I mean, we need to not even be putting people in prison in the first place. If you look at women's situation and what's happening, and this place of why women are there in the first place. I mean, this is where the the real issue lies, isn't it? Is how we're really dealing with what's happening to women Mm. in society. I've been working on that side of things for the last three years. Mm. So the organisation I work for, my role is to support women who are going through the criminal justice process. So I'll go and see them in their cells when they've been arrested. I'll go and hear them. I'll go and listen to them. I'll be that 
calming person who's actually there for them I've we we get a really good response from the custody officers so we've got a really good relationship with them but then it's about working with the women once they're released like why have you been arrested what is going on for you what is going on in your life that has brought you to a point where it's either shoplifting or it's drug being, addiction released yeah. with a tent i've got nowhere to live yeah. go back to the same relationship exactly. it's just a revolving door so it's how do you support women in that when they're in that place and it's from my own lived experience, I know that having somebody to walk alongside, I would have absolutely killed for that. Just mm. somebody to walk with me, not tell me what to do, not drag me, not push me, but like, okay, this is this is a path, this is a, a plan on how we can work through this. And being able to support women into making healthier choices and being able to evidence that to the court so she's not necessarily going to go to prison because she's maybe worked with me for a year the you can I can evidence for her the amount of work that she's done in turning her life around that's received amazingly well within the courts and that can maybe bring her to a suspended sentence where she is continuing with our support in the community or it may be that she gets a fine and she's not going to prison it's it's about trying to stop women going there in the first place we know that women's lives completely implode if they get more than a 13 week sentence they lose their housing they lose their benefits they lose their children there is so much that is damaging for a woman once she is incarcerated once she's locked away for a period of time how does she rebuild her life after that? She she's in that vicious cycle then where she's her children are gone. How is she going to get them back? That's overwhelming. And if it's overwhelming, she then may be reaching for a way of self-medicating. So she's using trying to put a woman back together at that side of things is harder. We still work with those women, but it is much better to get there before they actually get sent to prison. Early and interventions. Absolutely. The carrot and not the stick. Yeah. You're being kind. You're going and you're creating a place where they can talk and they can feel heard and they can yeah. feel listened to rather than going on groups where you're told you must come or you're being returned to prison. Yeah, yeah. So if you don't respond well to that method of you do this or this will happen, yeah. then everyone's just back in that revolving door going absolutely. round and round and round. It does make me think about identity, though. You know, the um, the quintessential elicitor they say of shame is this unwanted identities. Mm. So this place of how we rid our identities of, of I am of this person and I will always be seen as this. I'll always be seen as someone who's shoplifted. I'll always be seen as a criminal. I'll always be seen, you know, as a single mother who failed, you know. Or, or prolific a, offender. Or prolific offender. And this place of how do you work against to get your healthy self-identity back and... And I always think about this thing that we really need to know that we are more than the worst thing we have done. I always talk about the gaze within shame because I think the moral gaze, you know, whose moral gaze are you looking from? I have my gaze of what I think is morally where I've been sitting in my life, you know. So I was a single mother and everybody around me was single. If I go out of that and I look at the gaze of marriage then I look, I don't look a very successful person. You know, people say, oh, you're, you're not very successful, are you? Because you haven't done very well. And this is the truth. This is what people, you know. So it's depending on whose kind of tribe you're in and what moral circle you're in will depend on whether I'm, a, I'm this is normal. You're, you're conditioned to be like that, to not be good. It's almost like we're bad and we actively enjoy that role. 
because you're conditioned to live it. So everybody plays a part. The officers play the part. You mustn't do that. And we play a part. We're going to kick off, flood the cell, do whatever. And it's almost like you revert to type as soon as you walk in there. And it's mad, the sights, the smells, the clanging of the keys, Mm. the trauma that comes back to you from that environment because you're geared up. You're in hyper arousal all the time. So some people are fighters and some people will retreat. Some people will freeze. Everybody manages the, the environment differently. But the the prison feel as though that they want to stop this behaviour so they need to maybe look at what can they do it's odd isn't it because when you talk to people in the ministry of justice who are sort of you know the higher ranking lots they sit there scratching their heads and it's like oh self-harm and suicide and it's how do we how do we sort of fix these things and you sort of think well we know really we know know. and none of it's rocket science you know we've put a rover on mars we've put men and women on the moon you know and it's like Yes. Come on, this isn't yeah. that difficult. And actually, we're talking about, you know, what prisons don't want to be as violent yes. and inhumane. Yes. I, I genuinely believe they don't want to be violent and inhumane, but we've sort of hit this sort of yeah. point of just complete um, inertia. Mm-hmm. It's like we can't move and mm-hmm. even the good people are stuck in the treacle. Mm-hmm. And, and I've really seen that because it's been 23 years of working in prisons myself and working with the good people, the bad people, the in-between people. Mm-hmm. And even the good people who are at the top, in the middle, on the wings, all of us together, we've tried so hard to move the dial. And of course you do in certain areas and on certain wings for a certain amount of time. But then, of course, you have to look at the staffing crisis in prisons and, you know, the older officers that have left who might have been trained and now all the new officers have come in and now with the things they're seeing and dealing with, they're traumatised, that they're going off long-term sick, the crisis in staffing and the police, so then the young prison officers who go, God, this is hellish in here, I'm going to go and become a police officer because I'm going to get valued more and I'm going to get paid more. So, I mean, it's just... So it makes you want to pull your hair up. But I'm not going to be too negative because I don't like being too negative. But it is hard. You're right. It's very hard to see what comes up when you're talking. And I just think, oh, my goodness, this system has been... People have been talking. Women in prison. Russia, you're a trustee. Yeah. You know, 40 years going round <laughs> yeah. and round the same. This is known. Even with our research, the woman who supervised externally our research to look at it as a final paper. Our supervisor was Lorraine Gelsthorpe from um, Cambridge. But she said... This, we have threaded something that everybody knows. Yes. Shame is there. She said, it's just that we needed it all thread together. It's the obvious. She went, of course. Of course, yeah. Why have we not looked at shame? This is so obvious. The first premise of shame was it was given to us. We can't have shame without being shamed, first and foremost. So I think that's why it's so pernicious. And it's so hard to talk about, to use the word. I remember being in a conference with you, Edwina, and Stephanie Covington, and I asked her the question, I was so intrigued, you know, Trauma Informed has done so much, you know, it's been such an important programme and it's done so much across the estate. And I said to her, why is it you don't, do you talk about shame explicitly? And she said, no, implicitly. She said, and she said, it's about being alone. So we had this conversation and I said, why are we not talking about it explicitly? And I realised, of course, in our research, it would take us 40 minutes to start even naming the word using shame. Using the word. Right. Using the word. Because it's, it's we want to run from it. Yeah. It's it's a very and it tricky makes people defensive and re- straight away and it's because we don't understand it. So the big question I have for you guys is: this amazing piece of work has been done. What next? When we first um, published this research, Russia, you said I am now a shame resilient theorist. Yeah. 
tell everybody. Good. So, it's identity. on my profile. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing because what you're saying is this is the missing piece. You were saying we need to look at shame and be resilient from it. Yeah. I think for and understand how it drives everything. It drives people at work. We were in the office. You were with your family. You see it once you start understanding. Oh, that's what's just happened. She felt shamed. She didn't know the answer, so she's reacting. And then you can put it into so many different environments, mm. and you mm. can start seeing it. Oh, it's shame playing out. You can also see how you can connect with that person as yes. well. If you can, if you understand the shame underneath, you you have that shame lens which you can then look at it through and if you connect with that you are more likely to get a really positive response that comes from that if you're looking through a trauma-informed lens which is an amazing lens to look through you may be hitting a certain level you're looking at at, at, this has happened to you but how are you feeling underneath underneath? where what is it that's underneath that kind of drives all of that and if you can connect with that you can then start making some really powerful progress. I think the slightly unfortunate truth about that reality is you can only do that if you work on your own shame. Uh, Yeah. So you can't be a shame-informed practitioner without understanding your own shame. And it's unfortunate because it's just really hard. Yeah. (laughs) That is the key, I think, in um, the peer-led Absolutely. It is. Saying, look, we're all imperfect together. What I was going to (laughs) say... Is, and which is kind of what we're talking about, is to befriend shame. It's not your enemy. It, it is, I mean, it's hideous, but it, it, it's to get to know it so that, like you're saying, Siobhan, when you're with a woman, oh, here we go. This is, the, and not get caught in the The thing is, the way you know shame is relational. Yes. So you don't even know you've got it until you're in a relational no. situation and then with an individual you. or a group, and then it hits you. This is the issue. So I think when I look at what next... I've been having conversations with the Women's Directorate, you know, looking at this safeguarding, looking at trying to disseminate an understanding around shame. You know, what are we talking about? How can we develop alongside trauma-informed? How can we just support a shame-informed approach that fits really beautifully, I believe, into trauma-informed work? It's just a a part of it that says, now let's just have a lens on this and let's explicitly look at that. And for me, you know, the Forgiveness Project, we're running some training, um, a public online training, but also in this discussion of I'm interested in the systemic as you are, Edwina. You know, I'm interested in not just we're doing a programme, but anybody who wants to say, I need to be shame-informed, I actually want to learn. One, when we were doing the research a year ago and just doing a preliminary kind of presentation of it, one woman said, oh, my goodness, this has blown my mind. She went off for a year. She came back to our presentation this year and said, this is the missing link. She said, I've learned so much. I hadn't even made that conscious realisation. It's the shame. It's not just trauma. It's let's look at these two together. Mm -hmm. And then we get this much more congruent view of the whole of it in that way. So a very specific piece of work, I think, is needed. But I think it should just be spread like open source. I'm up for open source that people just come and you say okay pay a little bit but just please embed it in your systems where you can and start talking about it and start going okay so how does that look what does shame look like that's shame because we need to get competent and none of us know all what shame looks like for each other or others we have to go that's shame god because it's so complex it's so unwieldy it's so you sometimes it's sticky and you go is that really shame i didn't even with perfectionism we're like i hadn't thought that was shame when we did we started our research 
in the prison when you want to take stuff in there and they've got their budget and it's for the discipline side of things, isn't it? It's for security and it's only if they've got a little bit left over to do these programs, these therapeutic programs. And it's like if you were doing more therapeutic programs, you'd need to spend less money on discipline. I know that's the that's what I find so hard. And I'm like a therapist and so I'm passionate about people being able to speak and talk and you see them healing so quickly in such a short time. Mm. Little brief Mm. interventions, Mm. like twelve weeks. Six week interventions, people change their their whole life. They just start to learn, and those light bulbs start to come on. And you you just think, if things had been different back then for me, maybe Mm. I wouldn't have spent so many years in and out of that revolving door, not knowing any better. And we talk about being misinformed by misinformed people. And now there's answers. Mm. There's answers, and it's just like we know now, we can do better now. And it's just like it's it's frustrating. If you could trial a wing, so I I was really aware when we were working in HP Park years ago and this brilliant officer said I want to make this wing a forgiveness wing I want to start this wing as a forgiveness wing and then the next wing and he saw a huge shift in the wing on how people were starting to look at standing in the shoes of the other trying to understand what's going on mate why are you kicking off you know prisoners to prisoners they understood so if you looked at a shame informed (laughs) a wing that was really working with understanding and empathy that dissipates shame that's the key is to have this place of understanding empathy um, no judgment connection, and, not, and connection and communication and you started that with officers and the you know I mean it was just like the peer led stuff but and start it on a wing and then see how the violent see the drop being humanized to not just being seen as a person or a number or a surname you're a human and you have all of this stuff that you've experienced and having somebody who has enough intelligence emotional intelligence and understanding about them to try and connect with what's going on underneath i think what i'm realizing as well when we talk about this research that was done for the nhs about defense anxiety Mm -hmm. we call people by numbers then we are already disassociating the the relationship if i call you by your actual name and you know my name then we are already starting a personal kind of connection here and the fear of what that will take us to. And, you know, so I, I think about this and you're absolutely right, the humanity of being human. I don't believe, it's interesting because you're doing Hope Street, you know, and what that will offer, which is this relational place. And Joe Public have this theory that prisoners need to be punished when they're in prison. They're bad people. Why have they got a telly? Why have they got a telly? Yeah, they don't the deserve telly. a telly. The telly comment they don't deserve a, a telly. They've got an Xbox. What are they doing with an Xbox? Like, that's not right. They're in prison. They should be being punished. And what they fail to understand is that the punishment is being taken away from everything, taken away from society. And having things that normal people would have is not a bad thing. It helps like if you I used to listen to the music on my telly a lot and I would read a lot and that was my way of kind of getting through my sentence was to do a lot of reading a lot of listening to music and if you haven't got that what are you then going to do mad. yeah it's and cold, then you'll kick off punishment yeah. yeah. like sends you mad rounds and rounds yeah. the media narrative is so shaming yeah. in itself of course it serves a purpose doesn't it so the narrative that the public hear Whenever I talk, I'm sure, whenever I talk, it must be the same for you, Edwina. If you're talking about what actually people are in serving for, yeah, your friends, my friends, they're just, they're just, they cannot 
can't believe it. Can't it's like, it. how is that possible? It's like women don't serve sentences for a few days. Yes, they do. Yes, yeah, they and do. for what reason? And for, you know, it's just... I was reminded for two clotted cream scones. Yeah. Two clotted cream scones. I, it's, I bet it was one, wasn't more than £1.75. Yeah, but this is... I mean, it, and this is the I find thing. that hard to believe. Oh, it's and true. it's obviously true. But it's also being done in our names. If we don't speak about it, we're condoning it. I'm thinking of a woman who tried to kill herself by setting herself on fire in a park and it set fire to a tree. She was done for criminal damage. Yeah. There was one woman on IPP. This is, I mean, the IPP, of course, yeah. is so distressing. But for stealing a handbag, so she had 14 months for that, 13 years later. Still is. Still it's in. wrong. It's, it's wrong on every, I mean, it's so obscene that I think... You know, I did a public piece of work around this research. I did, an, I translated it into dance at a master's at, at Trinity Laban. And I was just with dancers performing this piece with the women's voices in dance. These women are dancers. They were aged from 22 to 38 years old. They were crying by the end. And they said, I just want to go into prison and break the women out of prison. I can't bear it because they don't know what's going on. Nobody knows it's silenced. And I just think this is the issue we have, even with the appeal situation around the court system and the barristers and 59,000 people waiting to go to court. This situation now, it's horrendous where we are. And I just find it, it needs to be spoken and it needs to be publicly out there because people actually don't know the story. They don't know. And all of us who work in the criminal justice system and all of us who have been part of it um, understand. But so many people, they just don't know. And hopefully by listening to the Justice podcast, people are learning a little bit more about the facts as opposed to some of the things exactly. that we read and hear about um, through, through the media. But um, if people want to learn more about the research or be in touch with you, yes, come to where would you direct them? So to the Forgiveness Project website, which is www.theforgivenessproject.com. And if you can scroll on our work there, you'll find the research and you'll find also some training. There's up and coming training for shame informed, developing a shame informed approach. And you can contact me and Ruth at the Forgiveness Project directly. Uh, Sandra at theforgivenessproject.com and Ruth at theforgivenessproject.com. So that will be the place. And, and then get we can in touch. Let's get, have it, a get in touch and have Let's, a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. If there's any inkling of anyone listening who thinks, ooh, I want to talk Follow someone. the ooh. Yeah, and and follow the ooh, and and do do what I do on a regular basis, which is ask the um, the stupid questions, which always turn out to be the not stupid questions, oh, the the yeah. delving, exploring questions, and we'll make sure that the details are in the footnotes of the podcast, so people can also go there to get uh, to get hold of you. And um, yeah, it's been a nice gaggle of us today, hasn't there? It's five of us, and uh, so thank you so much. I really really appreciate you coming along today thank and you. talking to me about it and educating me. Thank you so much, Thank you, Edwina. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.